for these like really intense emotional experiences, we are also experiencing them and it's okay. And you deserve care. And like, you are allowed to take time for yourself and it's important to process it. And that will hopefully make you a better parent and better caregiver and better partner. Hello, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. Today, I have rare mom and licensed clinical psychologist, Liz Spitzer, talking therapy with me. And no, it's not therapy for our kids, but therapy for us, because heaven knows we need it. In this episode, we get into the why we need it a little bit, but the majority of our conversation is centered on the barriers that we face to receiving therapy. Some of those barriers are external, like financial restrictions, and others are internal, like this concern from a listener, and I quote, It's years worth of rehashing that I'm not sure I even want to get into with someone, and what if I don't even like them and I wasted all that time to rehash everything? I polled our Instagram followers to see what your number one barrier is to receiving therapy, and one of those was the unknown. What type of therapy would be most effective? How do I find a really great therapist? And things like that. This episode is full of validation for all the barriers that we face, and also full of some really great solutions and tips for navigating those barriers. In this episode, you'll hear about many online resources. We have them all listed out in the show notes, so there is no need to frantically scribble those down during the conversation. And one thing I want to kind of bring your attention to really quick is the fact that this season, season eight that we're currently in, um, is full of some pretty heavy topics, like very heavy and we very intentionally have sprinkled these types of episodes in there. So I know it can feel a little bit cringy or like, oh, she's telling us what to do again. Um, But I do think it's really important to sprinkle in the what do we do about it episodes, like our self-care episode that we did earlier and this one. So I really hope that you listen with an open heart and an open mind and see if maybe this is something you could possibly swing. All right, let me tell you a bit about our lovely and knowledgeable guest, and then we will jump in. Liz has many impressive qualifications, and I'll boil it down for you. She has a PhD in clinical psychology and has specialized in trauma therapies, which she will share a bit about today. She's been doing some really important work in the world of psychology and mental health. Liz, her husband, and toddler, Wesley, live in the Boston area. Wesley has a rare genetic mutation— infantile spasms, and global disabilities. And I mean, it made me think of what Amanda and I pointed out in the careers episode, that disability happens to all kinds of families and people. And I just love that she can speak about this topic with both the clinical knowledge and personal experience. Liz is a lover of anything and everything with chocolate. Ugh, my son Kimball can relate. <laughs> and taking walks with her family and dog around their neighborhood. Let's jump in. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you and chat about therapy. It's so important and something that I think we all need as parents of medically complex children, and really, I think everyone on earth needs, (laughs) but especially in this realm. And I would love to kind of start with that of why we need therapy as parents. Yes. So there can be lots of different reasons, as we all know. 
I think especially in this community of parents of children with rare diseases or complex medical issues or disability, often the things that come up are chronic high stress, grief, processing this really big life adjustment of going from either being a parent or expecting to be a parent to going to be a parental caregiver, which is a really different role. And then as we're going to talk a lot about too, I think oftentimes people in our situation and community have experienced medical trauma or other types of trauma. Sometimes the trauma leads to the medical challenges. And so all of those can be reasons that people might be seeking therapy. Yeah. When I would think about therapy, I'd be like, oh, well, I don't have trauma. I wasn't like abused as a child or like these things that you think about more of traditional senses of trauma. But while I did go through therapy and I was first meeting with my therapist, she was like, that's definitely traumatic. That is trauma. And so I think realizing that that is a more of a broad sense and then that like trauma is not the only reason that we need therapy. It's the grief and adjusting and the stress. Yes. And I would love to for you just to define trauma. Yes. So trauma in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Illness, is defined as experiencing or witnessing actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. It can also be learning about this happening to someone that's really close to you, like your own child. And so that's the clinical definition of trauma. And some people might be like, yes, definitely have that. But these disorders used to be called trauma and stress-related disorders. And even just high stress, even if it doesn't meet that level of a clinical trauma, that happens as well. Mm-hmm. And what about like big T, little t trauma, right? Because that's something that my therapist was like, your trauma is little t. And that's when it doesn't fall under that definition. Yeah. So I think people define big T, little t trauma different ways, right? I think big T trauma is probably using the clinical definition. And little t is more of like, so for instance, like divorce doesn't count as a traumatic event in the clinical sense, but it can definitely be really stressful. And so I think there's a lot of things that fall under that, but you want to make sure that the treatment you're choosing matches what your treatment goals are and what you're going in for, and not necessarily just based on diagnosis, but that's important too. And so if you haven't experienced a clinical trauma, you technically can't have PTSD, but there are so many other disorders like adjustment disorder that are very similar to PTSD and based on a stressor instead. And so that's an important thing to think about. And The other thing to remember is that trauma and stressors don't just lead to PTSD. So some people might experience a trauma and develop OCD or substance use or depression. And so trauma doesn't automatically equal PTSD, which I think is important to remember. So like, I like to tell people this stat because I think it's sometimes helpful. 80% of people or adults 18 and up in the US have experienced a trauma, but only six to 10% will develop PTSD in their lifetime. And so some people are able to naturally recover. Some people develop PTSD and some people might develop other mental health issues. So I think, you know, making sure that you find a therapist who can work with your treatment goals and and really listen to you and understand what's going on is a really helpful starting point for therapy. Yeah. And we'll definitely get into that a lot more in depth later in the episode, because I do think that's really important to make sure that the therapy we're getting is effective. And that really leads into our first section of all the different types of therapy that we can look into and that might be most effective because as I asked the community about this topic, there are a lot of barriers to getting therapy as parent caregivers. And so like it has to work or be worth it to jump through all those hoops, right? And so I think that like you say, like finding the right fit is so key and making sure it's an effective therapy. 
So before we get into the types of therapy, I also wanted to touch on a question that one of our listeners submitted. And she said, how do you recognize the need for therapy before things get too out of hand? So I'm going to give like a two-part answer. So one, the general rule of thumb is that if you notice that you're having symptoms that are starting to interfere with different aspects of your life, so getting in the way of work or your social life or in relationships, your responsibilities as a caregiver, as a parent, just finding it really hard to do daily activities like getting out of bed, showering, those type of things, that's a really good indication that it's time to reach out for some help. I think the other piece that I would say is that if you're noticing that you're having like lots of avoidance or having a really difficult time processing all of the different difficult experiences that we've all been through, I wouldn't say it's necessarily like going to get out of hand, but it might also be really beneficial to work on that before it spirals. Not saying it will, but like it's a nice thing to do preventatively. Yeah, I've experienced both ends of that. My first time with a therapist was after Kimball, I think he was six months old or something. And I was actually going for my dad's death, which had occurred a year and a half before that. It hadn't really occurred to me that like I needed therapy for like all the really horrible stuff I was going through. I would say trauma. I don't know. It was very traumatic, like all the things that were going on with Kimball. And when we were in the office, I was like, oh, no, this is definitely something I need to work on. And so we worked on that for a long time. And then later I saw her again for other stuff going on in my life that were current. And it was interesting to me how different those felt, like of the really current things of like, I'm not just working through past things. I'm working through stuff I'm going through like right now at this moment and future things, which I think that there are a lot of parents too that like that is the situation. It's not just like past, like, oh, when they were born, this was so traumatic. It's happening every day or every week. And I'm, you know, anticipating outliving my child and so like the fear of knowing that's going to happen in your future like I think these are all things that would be so awesome to have a therapist helping guide you through that as it comes absolutely and therapy really should be like that non-judgmental safe space where you can say anything and I know some people have that with friends and other outlets but it, it can be hard to find where especially if you have like fear of losing a child or are having really scary thoughts There might not be many people that you feel like you can fully honestly say that to. And having a space where you can say that in a non-judgmental safe place is so important. Yeah. Always knowing, too, that, like, they've heard it all. Nothing I could say would shock her. I think that feels good, too. And there's just a difference, too, at least in my experience, of, like, between a trusted friend and my therapist. They feel similar and, like, I feel support from both, but the support is very different at the same time. Yes, yeah. And then I want to touch on really quick, like the feeling that, oh, who am I to go see a therapist for the things that my child has gone through? It's their trauma. It's their experience. And I don't know if like I don't deserve therapy is the right way to phrase that. But I know that that can hold people back to kind of almost this guilt of going to therapy for things that our kids have been through. Yeah. First, I think it comes from such a well-meaning and like respectful place. I know you've been talking about it a lot on your podcast and it just kind of been out in the world about parents having a different experience than their disabled child. But I would say, especially for trauma and just even if it's not necessarily trauma, but for these like really intense emotional experiences that we are also experiencing them and it's okay. And you deserve care. And like you are allowed to take time for yourself and it's important to process it. And that will hopefully make you a better parent and better caregiver and better partner by being able to have some space to process, to think about this, to 
find some skills that help you cope with the really difficult moments and when anxiety comes. And so I totally feel for that thought process. I think some other things along the same line is that I've heard some people say things like, well, someone else's trauma was like way worse or like my kid's stable right now. So like it must not be so bad. And I would just say that we all deserve care. Even with predicting like who's going to develop PTSD, we're not really great at it because it's not necessarily based on like what was the worst trauma or how long ago it happened or these other factors. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't need help. Yeah, I really love that permission too to be like, sure, so-and-so might quote unquote have it worse, but that doesn't mean I am not also in a really bad place and also need help. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize too what you said before that of just having help navigating really tough feelings and big feelings in life adjustments and things like that. Like that absolutely, you also deserve therapy, even if it's not like the traumatic experiences that you're processing. That's just so important. Yes, for sure. So let's dive into types of therapy, because I think that this will be really great to outline. I know a lot of parents were expressing that like they just don't even really know where to start with going into therapy. And so I think knowing the different types of therapy that are out there can be really empowering. And as listeners are hearing this, maybe one will stand out to them as like, oh, you know what? That seems like a really good fit. Maybe I could try that or look into it more. So yeah, I'm going to talk about three different types of trauma therapy. And then one type of therapy that I don't know if holistic is the right word, but it can be used in a more universal sense. So it can be used for trauma and it's been shown to be effective for that, but it also can be used for other things that I think might really be important in our community. And so I think the one that is probably most popular and that everyone's heard of is EMDR, which I'm terrible at saying the real name, so I apologize, but it is mm. eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. If you haven't listened to Madeline's episode on EMDR and her experience, highly recommend it. I think it's really unique to be able to hear from someone who's done it as well as the therapist that guided you through it. And so EMDR is, I think, unique from the other two in that most EMDR practitioners will allow people to do EMDR with things that don't meet for a clinical trauma. Those like maybe little T or medium T, if that's a thing, traumas, mm -hmm. you'll still get a lot of use out of EMDR effectiveness. And so EMDR is focusing on processing difficult memories and experiences using a really unique technique that is, again, I fully have to admit, I'm not a practitioner of EMDR, so if I get this wrong, I apologize, but it's incorporating the use of eye movements and other forms of what's called like rhythmic left-right stimulation or bilateral stimulation, so that while the person is focusing on their traumatic memory or difficult memory that they're trying to process, they're simultaneously doing this bilateral stimulation with the goal of reducing how vivid and difficult the emotion is to process, so kind of dampening the emotional memory. Yeah. And I'll add to that really quick. So that might look like eye movement, obviously, is one of them because that's the the name. <laughs> that's part of the acronym. Yeah. <laughs> but then like I've also used like you tap your knees like right, left, right, left while you're thinking about the memory or even sounds like hearing it from your, on your right ear and your left ear and your right ear and your left ear. And that's supposed to help you reprocess it by going back and forth between two sides of your brain. Right. Yeah. I think that's the idea behind it. Yeah. One of the nice things about EMDR is that there are a lot of people that practice it in the community, so it can be easier to find therapists that are trained in EMDR. And so all three of these trauma therapies will start with some history taking, so understanding what you're coming in for, and then what's called psychoeducation, so talking to you a little about what is trauma, what is PTSD, 
And how is this therapy, whichever one you're doing, supposed to work? And that part is really important. Like, so you should understand and, and your therapist should be explaining to you what your treatment goals are and how they think that this therapy is going to work for you. So we really don't want therapy to be a mystery. One of the ways that you know you're kind of like done with a memory that's like, you know, like, okay, we're done with this and we can move on to another thing that we need to work on is when you're first starting it, you rate how distressing the yes, memory the subjective is. subjective units of distress. Whereas like on a scale of one to 10, how distressing is this memory? And a lot of like eight or a nine. And then by the time you're done working on it, so that might be over the course of weekly therapies for like a few months, when you know you can move on to another thing is like, okay, now I'll rate that memory and it will be like a one or a two. And so that's one really cool way of being like, wow, that really did desensitize me to that memory. Like that memory no longer gets my heart rate up and no longer makes me feel like just overwhelming emotions, but can look at it more objectively. And that's something that's been really, really helpful for me. Again, I have a whole episode about this, so I obviously care a lot about EMDR, but I think that that's a really cool way to see the effect that it can have on us in kind of detangling our trauma. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And so a somewhat similar therapy in that it also uses this scale that Madeline's talking about, the subjective units of distress or SUDS is prolonged exposure. One pretty key difference is that in EMDR, you don't necessarily have to talk about the trauma. You're bringing the memory to mind. Obviously, some therapists will have you talk about it. But in prolonged exposure, one of the main parts is directly talking about the most distressing traumatic memory. So especially, I know there's listeners that have experienced multiple traumatic experiences. And so typically with trauma therapies, they'll have you start with the one that is the most distressing, the one that the one you want to talk about least essentially is the one that we want you to start with the most, which I know is hard. But. And so in prolonged exposure, it's really focused on a, what's called internal avoidance. So avoiding like those thoughts, feelings, memories and external avoidance, which is like avoiding things in the world, which we all know as triggers that bring back these memories and feelings. And so for some people that may be going to the hospital or blood draws, or there can be so many different triggers that we all experience. And so in prolonged exposure, the in-session practice is repeatedly saying this memory over and over, also using a said scale, so rating how you feel before and after with the idea that in a similar way you're processing it and the specific way that they have you go over the trauma memory is supposed to help your brain process it better and consolidate the memory better so that it's not bouncing around in like having all these like trigger points. And then for the external avoidance, when you're out of session, there's a really systematic way of starting to engage with and do things that you might have previously avoided, but that we know are objectively safe. And so you don't start with the most difficult thing. You start kind of slow. And the analogy that people typically use is like, if your child got knocked over by a wave, you wouldn't say, okay, well, we're just never going to go to the ocean again. You would go to the beach, but maybe not go to the water. And then the next time, maybe they'd put their toes in and like, right, you'd slowly get them to feel comfortable with it again. And so in the same way, like we're going to slowly start engaging in some of the things that we know are safe, but because of all of our past traumatic experiences, we've been avoiding. How would that work with like current stressors or current events that are happening, right? Where like the recurrent trauma. So say like, oh, I missed my child's seizure. I wasn't able to react as quickly because I was driving. And then the next day we're at the park and they have another seizure. or Like, you know what I mean? Like where you're having kind of these repeat traumatic events or high stress events that are reinforcing that fear. 
when you're doing exposure therapy, would that change how you do that or even EMDR or these other ones? So typically, like I mentioned, right, you're going to work on the most distressing memory. And the reason that it works like that is that typically if you work on what's the most distressing, it will generalize to other situations. It obviously is more difficult in the situation where these stressful or traumatic events are constantly recurring. But hopefully, like in that example, if your child has a seizure in the park, it's obviously super distressing, but hopefully you're able to respond to it. If you're feeling like you almost have that freeze reaction or have the urge to like, and I don't mean run away, like pack up your van and leave, but like you like don't want to deal with the medical things. You want someone else to take them to all their medical appointments. Like you can't handle that. It's really trying to get you past that and help you engage in your life again. And so- Mm. It's definitely going to make it harder if these things are constantly reoccurring, but I think it can still be effective. Both EMDR, PE, and other therapies we'll talk about. Okay, that makes sense because I think that's a huge concern that I was hearing again and again because that's our reality, right? Often it's not this one thing in the past. Well, it may be that too, but then things keep reinforcing that fear or that traumatic response. Absolutely, yeah. And then the last type of trauma therapy that I'm really going to talk about is called cognitive processing therapy or CPT. And so this is really focused on sometimes after people experience traumatic events, their thinking can change. And so they might start having like strong negative beliefs about themselves, including like a lot of blame or shame or guilt. And it can also change the way that they see the world and other people. Some thoughts that I've seen that like make me think of this are one common response can be people really strongly believing that like the odds will always be stacked against them. And if there's any minuscule percent chance that something could happen to their child, it will because they already have this rare disease. I think there's a part of all of us that feels that way because we are such like a rare statistic. But if that's something that's like genuinely getting in your way, thinking about it over and over again, and that creating a lot of negative emotions for you, that's something that I would be thinking about in the realm of this. I think also like Thoughts like, well, if I wouldn't have chosen to do this procedure, then this wouldn't have happened, or I should have noticed this earlier, and then X, Y, Z wouldn't have happened. Those like, I should have, I could have, it's my fault, I did this type of thoughts. So that's really what cognitive processing therapy is focused on. And it goes through ways of looking at those thoughts, seeing what they're doing for you. Are they making you feel more anxious, more guilty, more depressed, more fearful? And if they're not helpful for you and they're causing problems, how can we work on making them more realistic and more accurate? So it's definitely not like a toxic positivity thing. The goal is not seeing the bright side of things. It's just to have a more accurate and realistic view. I think that is really cool because I don't know, I feel like maybe most of us have thoughts like that, like the trauma or the experiences that we've been through with our kids. Like it really does, for lack of a better word, like kind of mess you up. When I put a finger on it, it's like those thoughts, right? Like those beliefs about the world and just feeling kind of jaded. But just to be able to recognize things for what they are, because I think we also know, too, when we're thinking things like bad things will always happen to me because that's my experience. Like they just keep on happening to me. So like if something bad can happen, it will. But I think we also know logically that that's actually not true. And so I like the idea of being able to like believe the logic that we actually have. Exactly. And it's really focused on shifting that a bit, right? We all tend to fall into some of these thoughts at times. It's really like how strongly you believe them and if if you can see that other side. And then the last therapy I just wanted to briefly touch on, it's called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. And so the goal or idea of ACT is to create a full, rich, meaningful life while accepting the pain that inevitably goes with life. And so 
a lot of the components of ACT are working on being able to mindfully live in the present moment, which I think can be important because I've at least noticed this in my own life. Like I do get caught up in these anxious thoughts about like, was that a seizure, right? Is this fever going to land us back in the hospital? Like it's so easy. Am I doing enough therapy? Can we afford to do a NAPA intensive? Whatever the thought is, even if it's further off, it's hard to keep ourselves grounded in the present moment and to enjoy the time that we actually have with our child and with our family. And so part of this therapy is really helping people to practice a little bit more mindfulness, especially with the things that they value. So I'm assuming most of us are listening to this because we really value our family and our child. And so helping us focus on doing the things that are important to us, doing what matters to us, being really in the moment about it. And then some other components of ACT that I think are really helpful for our community, especially is that it focuses a lot on learning how to sit with emotions and make some space for emotions and also with finding some distance from unhelpful thoughts. So cognitive processing therapy and other cognitive behavioral therapies really focus on shifting or changing thoughts. ACT takes a different approach and helps us find a little bit of distance and recognize that our thoughts aren't necessarily like true or false and that we don't have to like buy in and follow each thought down the inevitable rabbit hole that our anxiety spiral might send us on. So I just want to put a quick plug out there for ACT because I do think it aligns with a lot of the struggles that many of us are dealing with, especially for people who might be listening who are like, well, I don't know that like a full-on trauma therapy is what I want, or I maybe don't want to talk about the trauma because that sounds exhausting and I don't have the bandwidth for it right now. It's just another option out there. I like that. I've never heard of that. That sounds really cool. And I agree. I think that's very relevant for this community. And then really quick, before we move on, I would also just like your perspective on like the difference between these specific therapies and talk therapy. Yeah. The first three therapies I mentioned are called trauma-focused therapies. And so trauma-focused therapies, or really most evidence-based therapies, are time-limited, meaning that EMDR, prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, those are like at most 12 to 14 sessions. And so you're really having this like one targeted goal that you're focusing on, and they're a little bit more structured in that there's a specific thing your therapist is going to have you do each session. With like more generic talk therapy or supportive therapy, typically that is more you're coming in and you're talking about what's on your mind that day or that week, what's been going on. And I wouldn't say like either is necessarily better or worse. It's based very much on like what your goal for the therapy is and I think it's important to remember like different frameworks work for different problems. And so if you're really wanting to focus on a trauma, I would highly suggest at least considering doing a trauma-focused therapy. But as many people have probably experienced, you can do that and go back to supportive therapy afterwards if you feel like you, like a lot of us, the stresses have not gone away. This isn't like a one-time incidence in the past. It's something that we're still dealing with. We're going to continue to have stressors. And if it's helpful to have that space to process. I think it's great to continue. ACT is a little bit different in that it can be time limited, but someone can also be like a more like ACT informed therapist and see you for a longer period of time where you are just continuing to have talk therapy. I really like that. And I, I've bounced between doing EMDR and talk therapy. And the talk therapy I find is very helpful for like current things. Like when you're in the middle of something to work out like all the emotions and untangle them and there's definitely a place for both of those, like for trauma therapy and talk therapy. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really great lead into finding a therapist that's a great fit. That was one of the number one things that was tied for first when I pulled 
the community of like, what are the barriers to accessing therapy? And that was one of the first was, I don't even know how to find like a great therapist. And really quick, relating to the talk therapy thing, I just feel like there were some concerns with finding therapists that have experience having a child with medical complexities or disabilities so that they can like understand because it was kind of this attitude of like, if they don't understand what I'm going through, how could they help me? And I don't know, I kind of want to push back on that. We'll talk in just a second about how you can find a therapist that has experience in that. But I would push back just a little bit because my therapist here I'm like obsessed with has zero experience in the things that I'm sharing with her, like recurrent miscarriage and Kimball's condition. And I don't even know that she's experienced uh, parental loss. And so like these things that I've worked with, like that have been, she's been so helpful. She has zero experience with. And so I think I'll, I'll throw that out there that like, the therapist does not necessarily need to have experienced it firsthand to be able to be really effective in helping you deal with it. And that talk therapy, I think that might be the one that people are thinking of when they want that experience of they picture like talking back and forth and maybe it'd be helpful to have that type of empathy. But what are your thoughts on that, on wanting a therapist that has that experience? So I very much agree with you that it's definitely not necessary. And if you find a good therapist, they should be able to validate emotions and have that empathy and still help you with whether it's support or skills or whatever you're looking for. I would caution that like if a therapist is being like very ableist or saying things that are unhelpful, that that is a good sign to move on. But I think you brought up a good point, like with, you know, your therapist has, at least to your knowledge, not experienced parental loss and you originally went for the loss of your dad. And I think if we think of it in like other settings, we wouldn't expect that of a therapist. So although it might be helpful and you know, you might be able to find a therapist with that. Hopefully, if you can find a good therapist, it won't be a huge barrier or a big disconnect between you. The other thing I would say is that often you might not know if a therapist has experienced this or not. So like, obviously, I'm like outing myself on this podcast now, but none of my current clients know that I have a child that has a complex medical issue. It's not something that like I bring up in my own when I'm working with patients or, or clients. So I think I would also keep that in mind that like that might be harder to find and that that might not be something they're publicizing on their website or however they're advertising for therapy. Yeah, totally. And along those lines, I know that there might be people who are like, yeah, but like I still really want someone who's experienced that, which is totally valid. And that's where I'll put a plug for Amanda Griffith Atkins' website. She's a therapist and she has a son who's disabled. And she started a directory of therapists that have experience in the disability world. I think like the qualifier there, it isn't necessarily that they're a parent, but that they have experience at least working with parents of disabled kids. So, yeah. I mean, that's definitely there as an option. It's not like my biggest thing here, I think, is just that just because they've experienced it, that doesn't mean that they'll necessarily be like the best therapist. And then also it won't necessarily mean that they're qualified in all the different types of like trauma therapies or the types of therapies that you may feel is a good fit. Absolutely. But yeah. And so her directory is broken down by state. And so just in general across, I think, all therapy license, but the provider needs to be licensed in the state that you are living in. And so with like I don't want to say there was any good parts of COVID, but with COVID, telehealth and teletherapy became much more common, which can help people who are living in more rural areas or just don't have the time to get to therapy. And so you can find a provider if you're doing telehealth therapy anywhere in your state, which hopefully opens up a little bit more options for people. Yeah, that's a super great option for 
like you say, if you don't have the time to get to a therapy appointment, cutting out that commute time could make the difference. I mean, many of us struggle to like an hour and a half of myself. Like, how would I ever get that time? But to reduce that down to like, well, okay, one hour by myself in the other room because I didn't have to commute there can make all the difference. So that is a really, really great option. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about how to find a great therapist and like how that looks. Because again, there's a big concern of like, I need to find a good fit and I can't necessarily spend like tons of time switching from therapist to therapist. So from your perspective, what is the best streamlined way to find a really great fit? There's a few tips I'll give. I don't think there is a perfect way, unfortunately, but I think it's important to interview therapists. So almost all therapists will offer like a free 15 minute or 10 minute consultation call. And I would absolutely take them up on that. Tell them a little bit about yourself. They might have some, you know, a few basic questions for you, but ask them like what type of therapies they provide, what their experience with whatever your presenting concern is. You can ask them if if you want to know if they've ever worked with people with disabilities or with children with disabilities before. Feel them out. Get a sense of if you if you like their personality, how they communicate with you. I think that psychology today can be a really helpful way to start. If you've never been on that directory, you can filter by insurance type, but also by if you want to woman or man therapist, you can filter by the presenting concerns like trauma, depression, anxiety, adjustment, whatever. I actually think there might be like a special needs disability category on there, but that can help you start to narrow down. There's tons of other like ZocDoc. There's lots of these type of platforms. And we can link those in the show notes Mm -hmm. so that if people listening are interested and those are just websites, right? So if they went like, if they typed psychology today, that would come up on psychologytoday.com. You know, then each provider will have a little bio. So you can start by kind of like reading about them. I think one of the nice things, at least for me, like I don't feel like I have a lot of time to like call more people. We already call a million doctors and insurance, (laughs) you know, all the time. But on there, you can email providers. You could like write one message, copy it, and like paste it to numerous people. Most likely not everyone's going to have availability right now or be the best fit. So if you kind of like cast a broad net of people that their profiles like seem like they might be a good fit for you, that can be a good place to start. It is a little bit of work on the front end, but I think trying to narrow down people with those introductory calls. Like you said, you don't want to like have to hop therapist and start all over. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is like if you find a therapist, try to give them like anywhere from like two to four sessions, unless they say something egregious. But typically a first session does not look like what other sessions will look like. It's very like get to know you, trying to understand your history. And and there's like always some basic consent things that have to happen. And so you want to give it a, a little bit of time, which also makes it more exhausting to not want to have to like keep switching. Yeah. And I will say too, like, finding an awesome therapist is like so worth it it is so incredible to have that person in your corner so I'll put that plug in there to like even though it sounds tiring and just one more thing like that could be such a game changer for sure and then one listener was wondering if I don't jive with a therapist how do I break up with them or like cancel or stop going but I assume you just stop going do you have to say anything I would definitely cancel because most people will charge you like they'll have like a no show fee, but you can say like, I'm not interested anymore or just like, I need to cancel our remaining sessions. You don't even have to give a reason, but I would definitely cancel because you don't want to get charged. Right. And then also there's the big question of like flexibility of a therapist, because obviously our lives are very tumultuous and like, oh, and now I'm supposed to go to therapy, but we're at the hospital or things like that. How do we navigate that? 
I would absolutely talk to your therapist either in the introductory call or in the first, you know, one or two sessions about that. Most people like you're hoping to find a good therapist, which also hopefully means they're like a good person. But like most people's cancellation policies are going to say like, except for emergency. But I think it is fair to right, warn them that we do have these medical complexities. And sometimes that means that we have unexpected ER trips or things come up. And I hopefully most people would understand that. I would also try to get them to agree of like, could you text them 10 minutes before or 15 minutes before? And like, I would just talk to them about it openly mm-hmm. and get a sense for like what they're comfortable with. But I imagine that most therapists are very much going to understand and want to make it work for you. If it's something where like you keep canceling five minutes before multiple times, they might ask you if now is the right time for you to do therapy, partially because right that they're holding a spot for you, but partially because like some of these therapies like EMDR, the more trauma focused therapies, like they do kind of build on each other and like they're meant to be done weekly. And so that might be a different discussion, but I don't think anyone will ever be upset or or frustrated even. Not that therapists are necessarily your friends, but like in the same way that like everyone understands hopefully and has some empathy for how difficult these situations are. Yeah, totally. And I guess that's where if they are a parent to a disabled child, like you would know that they like completely understand. But but like you say, they don't have to be in that situation to have empathy and the understanding of like the emergent nature of it. Yeah. So the other one that was tied for first of the number one barrier for parents to receive therapy, and that is child care or the time to do that, because that is, I mean, like a lot of parents are like, I don't even have time to shower. Like, how am I going to get to therapy? And so we talked about telehealth as an option to reduce the travel time, which is really great. I think like it's worth mentioning too, like at least in what I've heard from family and friends in my own experience, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I feel like being in person is more effective. But that being said, I do 100% of my appointments telehealth right now. So it has been shown to be equally as effective. Really? Um, Which, yeah. That doesn't mean that you'll like it as much, right? Some people really like that in-the-room connection. I think for some people, they might actually like being remote and being able to be in their own space. But effectiveness-wise, it is still effective, which is great to know. So yeah, telehealth can help. I think the other piece of telehealth is that although you don't want to be like attending to your child or things while you're in therapy, but like some therapists have like evening hours, or if you can schedule it during a time that you know your child would be either taken care of or taking like a really consistent nap or something, that's okay too. So trying to, you know, be a little bit more flexible with your time and and kind of creatively thinking about it, which I mean, this is a really hard question, right? Because none of us have enough time in the day. I think the other thing is like with some of these trauma therapies, they are time limited. So On average, it's about 12 appointments that are each 50 minutes long. And if you can carve out that like once a week for three months that you're giving that time to yourself, whether that's finding a caregiver to help out or I don't know, magically making the time appear. But the idea is that really that this will help you have more time and energy to give back to yourself, to your family and kind of get you unstuck if you're feeling that way. We all struggle with this. I just went to my first dentist appointment in two years. So I think, right, it's a hard thing. But the idea is that like we all deserve some time for ourselves and some care. And we especially deserve health care for ourselves. And mental health is a type of health care. So it is hard. And I don't have any magic solutions for us. But I do think it's worth it and can really be effective enough that it will feel very worth it at the end. 
Yeah. Like get you back on your feet, helping you become functional again to some level. And maybe not like singing and dancing all the time, but being able to go about your life. Yeah. It gives you a time where like you've dedicated this hour for yourself to process, to think, to vent. You're like really carving out a time to be intentional that's for you. Yeah. And I also do like to like for the trauma based ones, how it is a 12 week program or whatever, like somewhere in there, just because I do think that can feel more doable for parents at the very beginning, especially like if that does feel impossible, like, oh, how am I going to figure that out? It's like, okay, well, maybe I can figure it out for a few months and try to get back on my feet. And then I would hope that at the end of that, you'd be like, okay, I figured out how to make this doable. And maybe you could continue like talk therapy just because I'm like, you work through your trauma and stuff. And I just... I think a lot of parents have the level of stress and the recurring stress that like you probably could really benefit from the ongoing support of talk therapy or whatever it is continuing that. But even just saying like, man, just I can do this for a few months and figure it out the how effective that can be. Absolutely. And then I would just like put a plug in here. I know this is like easier said than done, but just looking at your community to figure out like who do you have in your corner that might be able to support this venture. And I think it can feel... I don't know, maybe a little harder to ask like your friend or your sister-in-law or whoever to care for your child. And I know that's complicated too, just with the amount of care they may need, but that can feel a little harder to ask if it's like, oh, I need any time for myself. Can you like for an hour a week, can you take care of the child? Like, I think that that should be something that we can say, but that might feel uncomfortable. But I do think that being able to say like, I'm working on trauma therapy. Can you take care of my child for one hour a week? Why do that? I think that can feel less uncomfortable to ask that because it's a very clear measurable thing like this is what I'm doing during that time and it's obviously a very good use of my time and so I don't know I feel like that can take some of the uncomfortableness of asking for help yeah absolutely and if there are people yeah that you trust to watch your child I think that would be a great use of those people if they're willing to learn and and help you out it also might be a good use of respite hours if you get those yeah And then one of the listeners, I love how she said that. She said, therapy is the best self-care I've ever given myself. I love I I just agree with that a hundred, a thousand percent. This is like the very best self-care you can give yourself, even though it's not like as pleasant as like taking a bubble bath or like the other things that people talk about doing, but definitely the healthiest. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to think about it. It is self-care. Yeah. And then let's talk about financial barriers, because that's definitely one that especially in this community, right? We have a million things to pay for that we don't necessarily even have the money for those things, for our child's care, for medical care, assistive devices, like all the different things. So do you have advice for people who want to go to therapy and they can even figure out the other things, but like the financial side is something that holds them back? So I'm going to give like a few different things that they might not all work together, I would say. One is definitely see what your insurance can cover because Obviously, there will still be a copay, but at least there's some help. I will just say this is like a national issue. It's definitely like more exacerbated in our community, but there are laws happening at the state level for mental health parity and equity that are trying to expand insurance coverage of mental health. But this is like a huge, huge issue. Another thing is that if you find a therapist that you like or that you're outreaching, you can ask what their fee is if they are not on your insurance or if they're private pay only. And ask if they ever offer like sliding scale or reduced cost therapy. Oftentimes therapists who are private pay, meaning that they don't accept any insurance, will save a few spots for either like pro bono or like very reduced cost therapy. So like the cost of a a copay for people that need therapy and can't afford it. 
would you specifically want to look for a therapist that doesn't accept insurance? Like say you don't have insurance, would you want to go to the ones that don't even accept it and they'd be more likely to have those spots that they might be able to donate or have it for a reduced cost? Yeah. So on Psychology Day, that might be true of other platforms. You can actually search by price, including $1 signs, so like less expensive and sliding scale. And so that's one option. You can also just, if you find someone that you think would be perfect, you don't have to like bear your soul. You're not trying to like guilt them into it, but you can just ask like, I know that you're not listed as this. Is there any chance you have some sliding scale or pro bono spots available? The other option is that if you live anywhere that's close to a university, if they have a clinical psychology PhD program, oftentimes the PhD programs have a community-based clinic as part of their training. Professors or whoever's like the supervisors in those clinics, as well as the students, will see patients at like very reduced cost. And oftentimes they're later grad students, so they've had years of experience already. And you have to remember that like PhD programs are like six to seven years. They've had experience. You're not necessarily getting like a brand new therapist. And oftentimes with PhD programs, they are learning these evidence-based therapies. So you can get these trauma type therapies or ACT or those type of things. And so typically they won't accept insurance, but they will have like very low rates for everyone. So that can be another way to look at it. It's not exactly therapy, but like Given Hour has support groups for rare caregivers. Angel Aid also has some support groups. And then the Postpartum Support International has, this is their title of the group, not mine. They have a group called Mental Health Support for Special Needs in Medically Fragile Parenting. That is not how I would ever phrase this, but it meets on the second and fourth Wednesdays at 1.30 Eastern. And I believe that's completely free. It's for people that are, their children are zero to four. So there are some other places to get support. They're typically, however, in group settings, they're not individual therapy. So it's a little different, but just so people know all of the options. Yeah. And then also like the podcast, I've had people reach out saying that like it's been just as effective or even more effective than their therapy. And I'm not saying don't go get therapy if you can. But I think the fact that people are listening right now, I think that's a really great therapeutic thing. Right. So I guess that's the difference between therapy which is like going into a therapist and therapeutic activities. So like listening to a podcast episode or attending these support groups or having a really meaningful chat with a friend who's really empathetic. Like I think all those things can be very therapeutic and offer some of those benefits. And even like with a trauma lens on, right? Like a lot of what we're trying to get people to do in trauma therapy is not to avoid and to allow themselves to process and experience some of the harder emotions. And right, listening to the stories that you bring on and other guests and yourself even and in, in your story with Kimball, people are likely allowing themselves to experience more of those emotions and work it out on their own a little bit. So yeah, I agree it is different yeah. than therapy, but I do think it, it can have a huge benefit for people. Yeah, I've, I thought that before too. And the, and the nice thing too that I've heard from other people is that if you don't feel like you're at a place yet where you can talk about the traumatic things you've been through, it can be nice, like a step towards that, to listen to someone talking about something that might be similar to what you've experienced because you can be in the privacy of your own home and maybe listen to it 10 minutes at a time and pause it when you need to. And like to hear someone else talk about it and not to react, I think can be a step towards facing it head on if you don't feel the bandwidth to do that. And sometimes I think it can help like you even understand your feelings. There might be a podcast episode that you really relate to, but the person's maybe a little bit ahead of you on the journey and then the way that they like phrase and look back on things, you're like, oh, yes, I am experiencing that. 
even with like totally. books, like I know you had the author of special on, but I think all of those type of things can help you relate more and, and understand. And I think it provides community, which is huge. So we all feel a little bit less alone and know that we're not the only ones going through this because it is hard. And it, it is, at least for me, like no one in my pre-diagnosis life really has any experience with medical complexities or any of this. So it is so, so nice to hear other people are going through it too. Obviously I wish none of us were, but like that they understand and, and you're not alone in this. Yeah. Yeah. The community support is a really important part of this and you won't necessarily get in therapy unless your therapist happens to have experienced it too. But like you said before, like ethically, they probably shouldn't be like talking about their own experiences. Very yeah, much, exactly. You know? And so I think like even the Instagram community can be really supportive and helpful too. I know there's been lots of discussion on like how to share and what to share, but I do think it is important to allow ourselves to talk about this. And yes, privacy is important, but it still is important to connect with others, to relate, to find the people that understand and, and can be there for you and to allow yourself to have your own experience and acknowledge that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we'll link in the show notes, like a lot of these things that we've been talking about, like the different support groups and a few different accounts on social media that have been helpful as far as like relating and, and having that solidarity. And Definitely Amanda's. The books. And yes, no, I was thinking that too. Amanda Griffith Atkins has a really great account where she, like every single post is probably going to be so relatable to everyone listening right now. And then Liz, your social media account that you're creating yes, too. I just a, started one. So. Yeah. There are so many great resources out there that don't necessarily put a financial strain if that is completely a no-go and you're not able to figure that that part or whatever other barrier you're finding to therapy like more traditional therapy okay and then kind of our last section relating to the kind of alternative versions of therapy that are not quite as head-on um, there's also kind of this apprehension of doing the therapy right of being like that's the worst day of my life why would I ever want to go somewhere where I have to like relive that or rehash it or explain it to someone or even really just think about it, like I don't want to. And I think that that can be really tricky. One listener said, it's hard to find a balance between getting pushed to work through it and being respectful of the trauma and how hard it is. And I think that's absolutely valid. It's so valid. And trauma therapy is, it's hard work. You know, you did it. There's definitely days where I'm <laughs> guessing you probably didn't want to show up and you're like, I don't want to do this again. And there might be days where you leave more exhausted and emotional than when you got there. But the idea is that especially like typically after like session four or five, which I know is a long time, but it starts to get way easier. And that's when we notice a huge shift in people's symptoms. I'm sorry if this is a gross analogy, but it's like the best one I have. But if you like scrape your knee and there's gravel and things in it and you just bandage it up and like ignore it, it's going to start to like fester and get really sensitive to touch. And anytime you touch it, it hurts really bad. And so the best way to, to manage that cut is to take off the bandage to clean it out which hurts worse than anything because you're like digging out gravel and, and sanitizing it with whatever ointments and things and then you bandage it back up and then it will heal and there might be a scar but it's no longer sensitive to the touch and it's not as hard to deal with and at some point it kind of becomes more of like a background thing than this thing that is like so consuming of your attention and and all of your emotions and that's kind of how we talk about trauma therapy is that like it's really hard. That beginning process is so hard and I don't want to minimize that, but hopefully it will be so worth it and allow you to really move forward and have some release and be able to process it better and have it not be something that's so intrusive in your life. 
Yeah, I love that analogy so much. That helps me go to therapy when I'm like, I don't want to go. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to think about this. And then knowing that like after I'm in like an emotional wreck for the rest of the day and maybe even the next day after that because of getting into it more. But it really is scrubbing out the wound. It really does help me feel the motivation to go and to help it properly heal and to really properly process through everything because it is important. And I think like it's also important to acknowledge that like if you're not handling it or dealing with it, it does fester. Like it, it's there still, even if you're ignoring it and putting the bandaid over it and you're like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it and go to therapy. Like it's still there. That doesn't make it go away. It's just you're pushing it down and it might show up in different ways in your life that you don't necessarily connect to that thing. But that's been my experience of like the more I ignore something, it it needs to be seen and dealt with. Yeah. I would add the caveat that like if you genuinely don't have the bandwidth or the time or the energy or all of those things, it's never your fault that you're experiencing these things. But if you can find the time and you do think this would be a good fit for you, I do want to encourage people to at least look into it. And like we talked about earlier, yeah. there are other types of therapy too that might also be helpful for you that, you know, you don't necessarily have to talk about the trauma and depending on what you're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to face it head on or scrub that out if it's so insurmountable or so overwhelming or just something that you don't feel like you can do. Like that is very valid. I am so grateful for your expertise and for you coming on and sharing these things. I think this is so important. And I'm really, really hoping that at least one person listening was able to feel more clarity on how to receive help, whether that's traditional therapy or like the alternative modes that we talked about and that they get in a better place than they were before. So thank you so much. You can connect with Liz and or me on social media via the links in the show notes. And just a reminder, all the resources we mentioned in the episode are in the show notes as well. Most of you have probably heard of the online therapy service, BetterHelp. We have an affiliate link for that, which if used, gives you a small discount and gives the Rare Life a significant donation. If you want to look into teletherapy, this might be a good route. It's super flexible and you can switch therapists very easily if you realize you're not a great fit. So anyway, check out the show notes for a link to that if you want to look into it. It's betterhelp.com backslash the rare life. Again, betterhelp.com backslash the rare life. We so appreciate the support given that way. It's a win-win. And speaking of receiving much needed funding for our organization, this episode was generously sponsored by the Nettle Families in honor of the Stites family who lost their son Logan during pregnancy to a rare genetic syndrome, CDPX1. It is such an honor to witness such supportive people in their corner. Thank you, thank you for helping us create this crucial episode. There is a link in the show notes to contact me if you or a loved one is interested in sponsoring an episode too. And lastly, a huge thank you to our production team that makes the podcast possible, including and especially Alyssa Newtile, who took over a bunch of tasks in the production of these episodes about a year ago, so I no longer have to do it all alone. The increased focus I've been able to have because of her has had a huge impact on the rare life. So yay, Alyssa. And thank you to Brittany for your continued rallying support, which has also been a game changer. Join me next week for an episode with three guests as we discuss the tough aspects of having in-home nursing. If you sometimes resent the need for in-home nursing or just want to hear what it's like with brutal honesty, this episode is for you. See you then.